This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, which can be found on page 809 in the Pew Bibles around you. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We come to you in the name of Jesus because of his gracious and glorious gift. God, and we ask you this morning that you would meet with us. God, would you pour out this morning as we open your word together a spirit of revelation, a spirit of wisdom, in the knowledge of you yourself. God, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we would understand and see and long for all that you have for us in Christ. God, would you give us the gifts this morning of longing, hungry, mourning hearts. God, would you give us a vision for what it means to find wholeness and fullness and satisfaction in you and you alone. God, we just ask for the grace this morning to submit our lives to you. Fully and wholly that we would be conformed by your word into your image. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our time together in the Beatitudes. Uh, last week, we looked at an overview of what the Beatitudes are, these, these first eight statements in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And we, we spent some time drilling into poverty of spirit itself. But this, this morning, I want to look at the, the next three uh, Beatitudes as we see there. The, the first four uh, in some ways form a, a, a unit together and you see them flow out of one another and there's a real progression between them. And so we're going to spend this morning looking at blessed are those that mourn, those who are meek and those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But before we get there, I just want to provide a little bit of a recap of where we are in the sermon and how we're uh, approaching this time together just for our benefit. So the Sermon on the Mount, as I've said every week, is the most comprehensive teaching we have from the lips of Jesus, outlining what it means for a believer, for a disciple to partner with him in grace 
to pursue the things of the kingdom. It's a picture of a life that's partnered with the grace of God, oriented around what he defines as truly valuable. That's what the Beatitudes are, are Jesus's statement of what is the most valuable aspects of his heart in his kingdom. That's what these eight statements invite us to see. So this sermon is a portrait of a life that lays hold of the grace of God made available to us in Christ Jesus by the Spirit, and we're seeking to orient our lives around what he calls good and whole and right, and what does it, what, what stands in the way of those pursuits, what kind of means of grace do we pursue to see those cultivated in us? That's the sermon on them out. Look with me at letter C. As we saw last week, the sermon begins with Jesus's statement about the value system of the kingdom of heaven. These eight beatitudes operate like invitations to holding and embodying the things that God defines as truly great. Or you could say it differently. These are the only way to be whole as a human. These are the only ways to uh, find true satisfaction, to be truly alive in the economy of God. These are the only ways to find that. He begins with these invitations to the whole life, the full life, the blessed life. They're like fruits that we cultivate by the grace of God in partnership with the Spirit's activity in our lives. Letter D, another way to think about them is to talk about ideas of satisfaction and fulfillment. We've seen that every society in all of human history has presented a picture of what it believes will provide true and lasting joy or satisfaction. Every culture, every society, every kingdom in history has a picture of what it means to be whole or full or satisfied. And the kingdom of heaven is no different. Jesus paints a portrait for us of this is what fulfillment looks like in the kingdom of heaven. This is the value system of my kingdom, Jesus would say. Humans are hardwired to orient our lives around what we believe will provide us the most true and lasting fulfillment. Now, you see this at work in your own life. Whatever picture you have that's in front of you as what you believe will provide you the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment, the most joy, you orient your life around finding those things, laying hold of them, attaining them. If you think more money is what will provide you satisfaction, you are going to orient your pursuits, your meditations, the energies of your life around posturing yourself and positioning yourself to get more of it. If you think comfort is what will provide you the ultimate satisfaction or the ultimate joy in life, you will use your energies, your resources, your strengths, the things that God has put in you, you will orient them to get more of it. If you think freedom or kind of like a life that's free from being encumbered by responsibilities or anything like that provides you the most satisfaction, you will live your life oriented towards that. It's how you are made. You cannot 
Run away from that. God designed you that way. To have a vision for what will ultimately make you whole and orient your energies and your activities and your behaviors in order to try to attain that. Now, the problem that we have in our sin is what we think is going to provide us satisfaction gets really distorted. We create all sorts of visions for what we believe will make us whole, and we orient our lives to go after them, and they come up short, and they can't ultimately make good on what they promise. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, stands up and he says, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be full? Do you want a life that in the eyes of God and in the eyes of eternity will experience what is truly blessed or whole or full or satisfied? This is the way. That's what Jesus is doing here. Letter E, these eight fruits are like the litmus test for our growth in grace and godliness. In many ways, these are the measure of our true and real impact in the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 5, 19. Jesus says those that do and teach these things will be greatest in the kingdom. That's Jesus's evaluative principle. He says those that do and teach these things will be great. So we, any other vision of what greatness looks like is going to fail you, Jesus would say. So each of these runs counter to the ways that the world defines success, growth, maturity, and greatness. Because of this, we intentionally and consistently reorient our lives by God's grace to see these things as blessed. Okay, just a reminder from last week, poverty of spirit is the first beatitude, and it's like the chief or the foundational one. It's like the doorway into the rest of them. And to make it really clear, Poverty of spirit is how we see ourselves. It's all about how you assess reality. What's your evaluation of reality? To be poor in spirit is to rightly see ourselves and our need in light of God's great design for us and our own inability to attain this, both because we're sinful right? Like God's holiness and our sin, the gap between those two things, when we experience them, we become poor in spirit, destitute in spirit. We see reality for what it is. But not only because of our sin are we poor in spirit. What we, even in the, uh, a place of redemption brought into the family of God, when we see the fullness of what God has made available in Christ Jesus, and we understand our utter inability to attain that in our own strength, wisdom, ability, might, that is poverty of spirit as well. So all we get to do is come in a place of absolute desperation and say, God, I need you. For all of the things that you've promised for me in Christ Jesus, I need you. I can't make myself experience your love or love you more. I can't make myself more obedient, more passionate, more zealous, more alive in Christ. I can't settle myself in the places of anxiety and despair. I can't do that in my own strength. Would you come by your spirit and work in me? 
and give me all that you've promised in Christ. And we see this in our, how we minister to others, right? We cannot produce the things that we long to see God do in and through us in our own strength. Any parents in this room really aware of this reality, right? There comes a point in every parent's life where you get to the spot where you go, the thing I want the most for you, I have no utter ability to make it happen. The spirit has to blow where he will. That produces poverty of spirit. It's what I feel literally every Sunday when I stand up here in front of y'all. My eloquence, my ideas, some sermon notes that I put in front of you cannot make your heart long for the depths of who God is. The spirit of God alone does that. And so I stand here and I go, God, the very thing that I long to see happen in and among our people, I have utterly no ability to do. And he goes, good. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's poverty of spirit. We experience that as we see reality more clearly by God's grace. Look with me at the top of page two. So from that, when we begin to experience our poverty of spirit, this place of absolute desperation, that we don't have the capacity to produce deep and lasting life in ourselves or in others, both because of our sinfulness and our utter inability, that produces mourning. So spiritual mourning is dynamically related to our poverty of spirit. If poverty of spirit is how we see things, how we evaluate things, how we assess them, spiritual mourning is how we feel in response to this assessment, right? So it's one thing to acknowledge that we have nothing before God. We have no good in ourselves. We do not have the ability or the capacity to see deep life in our own life, in others' lives, and we come face to face with our poverty. And we assess that rightly, right? Like that's one thing. It's another thing for that truth to begin to trouble you. And you experience the pain and the sorrow and the mourning of that reality. The progression of the Beatitudes demonstrates a fundamental principle of the human condition. How we feel is correlated to how we see or how we perceive. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. This is just a a human spiritual principle. Your feelings follow your perceptions. They always do. Your feelings follow how you see. And the problem with our modern contemporary world is we have turned this on, our, on its head. We think our feelings dictate what is real and what is true. Our feelings are evidences of what we perceive and how we see. And so a feeling of mourning in godliness 
comes out of a cultivation of seeing ourselves rightly before God in accordance to his truth and his word. Godly sorrow is a spiritual blessing that is worked in us by the power of God's spirit. The working of this reality leads us to salvation. When you first experience this, this is what it means to turn and follow Christ. The first time you experience the reality of God's holiness and your utter sinfulness, and you know that there is nothing that you could do to bridge the gap or make yourself right or clean yourself up before God, the sorrow that you feel there leads you to a posture of repentance. And that is a beautiful reality. But in Christ, it also continues to lead us to greater places of dependence and deliverance. Learning to receive what I like to call the painful graces of the Spirit is absolutely essential in our growth in maturity and godliness. Many do not rightly assess this emotional work in their lives, and it causes them to draw back in feelings of condemnation or in shame, right? Godly sorrow is a gift. It is a gift that is given to you by God's spirit. And if we do not learn to rightly assess the gift that is godly sorrow, we will be tempted in that place to draw back in shame and in condemnation. This is, this is the distinction of how do you assess condemnation or godly sorrow. Condemnation makes you want to retreat from God, clean yourself up, waller in your own shame. Conviction or godly sorrow compels you to run into him, to Come before him with nothing to bring and say, I cast myself upon your mercy. Would you be gracious to me? I find a lot of believers do not understand the gift of mourning. And in doing so, we end up drawing back from God in the very places where he's inviting us to come closer to him to receive his grace and his mercy. Experiencing the pain of mourning in our lives is evidence of the Spirit's presence. When you feel troubled about the state of your soul before God, the experience of your life in Him, when you feel troubled about that, that is God's Spirit working in your life. So many times I've found believers in that moment actually begin to doubt God's work in their life, right? They feel this pain. I feel like I'm coming up short of all that he would have. I feel like there's more that he would desire, but I find that I'm so weak and I don't know how to move forward there. And what they do is they actually go, this means that God's not pleased with me. He doesn't like me. He's put me to the side. And I actually want to look at people in that moment and go, no, 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 no. This is actually evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Turn to him in that. Run headlong into his grace. Fall on your face before him and thank him that you're not okay where you are. It's an invitation to you. This is what it means to mourn. Look at letter F. I want to highlight 
briefly four aspects of what I think it means to mourn before God in this beatitude. Number one, we mourn when we feel godly sorrow over our sin. Godly sorrow over our sin has the ability to produce true and lasting repentance in our life. This is the place where confession, which is poverty of spirit, there's confession. We confess that we are sinful before God. We confess something is sin. That's being poor in spirit. Meets what the Bible would outline is contrition. There is an emotional feeling aspect to repentance. There's confessing something as sin, and then there is the contrition that comes from understanding the reality and the weight of sin in the presence of a holy God. There is mourning. There is sorrow. That's, this is what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 7. He says he rejoices, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved to repentance. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. See, it's a gift. Mourning is a gift. That's the first. The second way that we could talk about spiritual mourning is the reality that we mourn when we grieve the reality of our present spiritual apathy, dullness, or powerlessness. There's a grace that's available to us in God to be troubled over our present spiritual condition. This is directly tied to receiving a revelation of all that God has made available in Christ to those who are his. What I mean here is like a heart that's alive, a heart that trusts in the promises of Christ, uh, a lowering of the experience of shame or condemnation or anxiety in Christ Jesus. These realities touching our heart, making us alive. There is an invitation in Christ Jesus to experience these realities. When I see that and I see my normal old Monday self, I grieve. I'm troubled, right? I'm troubled at the disparity between my spiritual coolness at times, my lack of power in my own heart and in my life with others. I mourn that. And when I experience the troubledness of that, that's called mourning. Let me, let me tell you something. It is not okay to not ever be troubled about your spiritual condition. That's not okay. It is not okay to not experience at times, and I don't mean every moment of every day, I mean at times a troubledness of soul that there is more to be experienced in the grace of God than I presently experience. Now, I find this to be the case sometimes among us because I don't know, I don't, I don't know if you're like me, but there are times when I'm really tempted to believe that the goal of my life is kind of to just flow through life and deal with the circumstances that come at me in some sort of like Christianly way. 
right? Like that's the vision I have for life. It's like, just walk through my life, make sure everything's kind of in order and going okay. And when things come against me, I just, I respond to them in like a a Christian-like way. That's not God's vision for our life. God's vision for our lives is to be alive in him, to be filled with the fullness of God, Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, to be alive in relationship with him, to have a vibrant spirit, to have deep joy and lasting peace in him. That is yours in Christ Jesus. And I regularly pray for, when I do not experience this, God, trouble me with the gap between all you have promised in Christ Jesus and my reality. Trouble me with that. And then when I am troubled with that, I seek to recognize the blessedness of that in mourning. Blessed are those that mourn. Number three, we mourn when we experience the cost of following Jesus. This is real and I don't want us to like fly over it or miss it or belittle it. Jesus calls every one of his followers to lose their lives in order to follow him. This is not merely like a sentimental call, but one that requires real cost, right? I have there Matthew 13, the the parable of the treasure in the field. He sees the value of the kingdom, goes and sells everything to obtain it. That's real cost, right? Like that's not ethereal. It's not uh, sentimental and real spiritual violence. There are real things that we lose in order to follow Christ. We do a disservice to ourselves and to others to minimize the real cost and the real pain in these losses. Now, here's where I think we are tempted to run quickly to like the way that the Bible talks about this, right? Because you get Paul in Philippians 3 going, I count it all as loss. It's like dung to me, rubbish to me. I, in, in, in light of the surpassing glory of Christ Jesus, I don't consider it anything. It's not even a real loss at all. And there are times when we are connected to that. And there are times when the loss feels more real to us. And we need to recognize that and turn our hearts back and say that that aspect of mourning is actually good. It's good. When you realize that you cannot have the world and Christ and the places where your heart has been knit to the world and you have to sever that, and that hurts, blessed are those that mourn, Jesus would say. Blessed are those that mourn. There's real cost to that. Look at the top of page three. Finally, we mourn when we grieve the brokenness of the world. Until Jesus comes to renew all things, we sojourn in a broken and fallen world. This means that we suffer the results of this present evil age, sickness in the world, 
death in the world, injustice in the world, and we will experience these realities until we see Jesus face to face. And there is a unique invitation laid out to Christians to enter into a posture of sorrow and lament that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be while we hold all the hope of God's promises. Look at Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Proverbs 13 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think we often only ever talk about this in relation to faulty hopes. This is just a principle. When you have hope that there will be one day when God will wipe every tear away from every eye, when death will be no more, when pain will be no more, when sorrow will be no more, when sickness will be no more, when injustice will be no more, and you wait another day for that, your heart gets sick. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that mourn, Jesus says. We truly enter into this beatitude. Look at letter H. When we refuse to be comforted by anything less than God's highest purposes. Similar to the discontent of poverty of spirit, there will always be well-intended people who will try to talk us out of spiritual mourning. There will be people that try to go, no, 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 it's okay. Uh, Just numb the pain a little bit. Draw back from God a little bit. Like, comfort yourself now. The reality of the waiting promise, the mourning receive the comfort of God, actually invites us to see that there is something about the life of discipleship that refuses to be comforted ultimately by anything less than God's fullness. And that's a painful place to live. That's a difficult place to stay. But there is a promise. They will be comforted. And this is the glorious promise to any and all who mourn in Christ. The promise is that they will experience true and lasting comfort. We'll experience this part in this life and full, fully in the age to come. I give a couple verses there for us. Look at Roman numeral four, meekness. So there's a powerful progression that comes here. When we see our poverty of spirit, we begin to feel the reality of our desperate plight. The reality of meekness then begins to uh, dictate or uh, encourage how we act in relation to others, particularly as it relates to our resources, our strengths, our giftings, all of those things. Letter B, meekness is to possess a servant spirit in the use of our natural strengths, our resources in relation to others. Meekness and humility are tied together really closely in the New Testament. To be meek is to use our resources, our time, our money, our reputation, our power for the purpose of serving with no regard of receiving gain from others. Look at page four. So Jesus moves us from poverty of spirit to mourning, this 
grieving sorrow at the, the despair between all of God's fullness and our reality. And then from that place, there is this portrait of those who have experienced these realities operate a particular way in this world. They're meek. And they're, they're meek with their resources, their giftings, the thing that God has given them. Letter D, contrary to common conceptions or misconceptions, meekness is not a personality trait or a temperament. It's not like being sheepish or timid, which are oftentimes just like a lack of confidence in our identity in Jesus or a fear of man or something like that. This is not timidity. Meekness is power and freedom that acts in ways that are opposite of our innate self-centeredness, right? So we're all in our sin, self-centered. We want to take everything that's been given to us and use it for our own benefit, our own comfort, our own glory, our own promotion, our own sense of well-being. We will take anything we get our hands on and use it that way. Meekness is the power and the freedom that comes from a life that has been united to Jesus that no longer has to fight for any of that stuff because it's been freely given in him. And so now from that place, we can use all of those things that have been given to us for the sake of others with no regard for ourself. Friends, that's violent, right? That's not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not sheepishness. It's not like a cowardice, like uh, holding back and like being mousy or something like that. This is a violence of soul that has been endued with the grace of God himself that enables us to use the things that God has given us that we would be so quickly tempted to take and use for our own advantage and own gain and own, own well-being and pour them out for the sake of others. That's what meekness is here. To be self-focused or self-centered in our pursuits is to live in profound bondage. We do this because we don't trust the promises and the care of God over us and therefore fight to attain our own satisfaction, our own comfort, our own promotion, our own fulfillment. Meekness, though, is one of the few traits that Jesus uses to describe himself. He invites us to submit ourselves to him. That's what it means to take his yoke upon us and learn his ways precisely because he is meek. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 11. Paul outlines it in Philippians 2 in one of the most beautiful expositions of true meekness throughout the scripture. He shows us that Jesus didn't use any of his divine rights for his own advantage. Rather, he used his strength to empty himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross entrusting himself to God. This is Philippians chapter two. 
Jesus, though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God of God. Eternally, he was one with God. He did not account, or count his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. The way you could also interpret that is he didn't use that for his own gain. That's what Paul is saying. He did not use all of the resources of his divinity to get for himself. What did he use all of the resources of his divinity to do? Empty himself. Pour his life out to the point of death, even death on the cross. Look at letter I. We grow in meekness by reorienting our preoccupations. We come to Jesus in a spirit of poverty, ask him to reveal himself as the source of everything we are and everything we possess. Because of this, we can be grateful for what we've been given and use it with generosity. However, we're naturally preoccupied with ourselves. Every one of us believes we deserve better in this world. Every one of us. It's our latent, natural way of being. You and I all think we deserve more recognition, more money, more freedom, more fun, more fulfillment, all of that stuff. What did we talk about last week as it came to poverty of spirit? What's the, one of the elements? One of the elements is I renounce my personal rights. To be preoccupied with myself, I constantly live in this state that I deserve a better lot that I have. To be preoccupied with Jesus reminds me that everything is a gift. Everything's a gift. Everything that I have is a gift. Everything that I've been given is a gift. Every place where I am right now is a gift. And I can pour my life out for the good of others, not asking anything in return because the one who will ultimately comfort and satisfy and fill, he holds my lot. He holds my lot. Look at letter K. This is, I'm just going to put this into your, uh, into your mind and heart. I'm going to let it sting for a second because it stings me. You want to know your growth in meekness. Look at how your heart reacts when you're overlooked, when you don't get the recognition that you think you deserve, right? At work, at home, all these places. When you are overlooked and you don't get the praise that you think you deserve or you don't get the accolades or you don't get the promotion or you don't get the whatever you think would satisfy you there or you think you deserve, when you don't get that, how does your heart respond? That's how much we've grown in meekness. When you're overlooked, when you're rejected, right? When somebody rejects you, what does your heart do? When you're resisted, when you want something and someone stands against that, your heart reaction there demonstrates the expanse of meekness in your life. We ask God to increase that. How do we do that? We come and we yoke ourselves to the meek one. 
right? We come up and we get up in his yoke and we walk with him. And he teaches us and he fills us and bestows us with meekness. So we were overlooked, right? We see, uh, we walk through this place. We gave of our time. We gave of our energy. We gave of our talents, our gifts, and we don't get the response we want. And I get all angry and up in arms and full of contempt and bitterness and sadness. And Jesus goes, come. Yoke yourself to me, and I will teach you how to respond when they overlook you. When when the God of Genesis 1 walks through the earth and nobody stops to worship him. Right? That's meekness. Right? The fact that Herod didn't fall down and uh, worship the living God. The fact that everybody that he walked by didn't fall down and give of their lives. This is the Genesis one God in the flesh. He goes, hey, do you want to know how to live when you're overlooked? Come and yoke yourself to me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart. When you're rejected, the Genesis 1 God coming to his own, John 1 says, and what did his own do? They didn't receive him. They didn't receive him. Resisted. How our hearts respond in those moments is a litmus test for meekness in our souls. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who understand that everything that they've been given is a gift from heaven and that they don't have to use that for their own advantage. We don't have to jockey. We don't have to posture. We don't have to fight. We don't have to use force. All we have to do is submit our lives in humble, tender obedience to the living God, and he will take care of us. Look with me at page five. This then turns to the blessing over those who are hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. The idea of hungering and thirsting flows out of this. It speaks of the aching and the longing that we have for the fullness of God. Look at letter C. Hunger and thirst make us desperate and have the potential to elicit dramatic and radical response from our lives. We'll reorient everything in our lives around attaining what we think will ultimately satisfy us. I just want you to know that about yourself. You will radically orient your life around what you think will make you whole. And Jesus says there is a blessing that comes. There is a blessedness to those whose hunger and thirst cannot be satiated by anything less than God's righteousness, his fullness, his truth. Look with me at letter D, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come to a close. There's a temptation in our society that has access to everything now to live throughout our lives unaware of the hunger and thirst we possess for God. Because of this, we must cultivate practices 
of intentionally detaching ourselves from the love of pleasure, the love of comfort, the love of fulfillment. This comes by practicing spiritual disciplines consistently over time, asking God to increase our experience of spiritual hunger. So Jesus says there is a blessedness to your life when you experience the aching and the longing that nothing else can satisfy you but God. When you experience that, you are blessed, Jesus says. Letter G, the greatest temptation in this. I find this to be a really difficult one to sustain. Uh, I I don't know about you all. I've said this a, a, a lot of times, but hungering and thirsting is not my favorite one, right? Like, I feel like we can romanticize this at times. There's, there's two kinds of longing we see in the Bible. There's the longing of like a lovesick bride for a bridegroom. That's like a, a beautiful, emotional, sentimental longing. There's a longing of a deer that's about to die because it can't find any water. Hungering and thirsting is not always the best, right? It doesn't feel great. It's not this like, oh, as the deer pants for living waters, my soul longs for you, God. This is like, give me a drink or I'm about to fall over dead. This is hard to sustain and stay in the place of that in our lives. And it's really hard in our society where we have access to everything we want right now at the tip of our finger and we can numb that thing just about any way we want. And Jesus says that this is a posture of what it means to be blessed. But the greatest temptation I think that we face sustaining this over time is the temptation of despair. When our hearts experience longing and aching of unfulfillment, we're tempted to believe the lie that God will not make good on his promises. So we run and try to satiate it somewhere else. This requires sustained grace to remain in the place of faith over the long haul. Believing that God will make good on his promises, those who hunger and thirst will be ultimately satisfied. And how will we be ultimately satisfied? This is the promise. Why are those that hunger and thirst blessed? Right? Like, why are these pictures of the whole life? There's a paradox here, right? That Jesus is inviting us to. They don't feel it in the moment. It's why I don't love the translation. Some some people will translate the word for blessed as happy, which I don't actually think does us a lot of good because when we feel mourning, when we feel uh, hungering and thirsting, we don't go, oh yeah, like I'm happy right now. But Jesus looks and goes, that's the whole life. Why? Because the one that mourns gets the hand of God Almighty coming and wiping the tear away. The one that's meek gets God Almighty coming and giving them the earth, which means they have a place with him to rule and reign with him in eternity. The one that's hungering and thirsting gets God himself. The one that we see in Psalm 16 says, 
hey, there are pleasures forever at my right hand. You want to be filled and satisfied and whole and never lack and never want again? Let yourself feel hunger now. Let yourself be thirsty now. Let the grace of God by his spirit cultivate in you a longing for only his presence. And he says, that's blessed because there will be a day that comes when you will drink from the river of my pleasure. He says in Psalm 36, there will be no shortage, no end, no lack to the fullness of pleasure and delight and satisfaction that you experience at his right hand in Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you all stand with me? As we, uh, as we come to a close, servers, y'all can come on forward if you're serving communion. I just want to pray over us and then we'll come to the table together. God, we are yours. We belong to you. God, I want to ask this morning as we bring our time to a close as we have heard from your word, as we seek to be those by your grace who are conformed around what you call good and whole and valuable. Spirit of God, I ask that you would move in our midst right now. I love what we sang earlier. The spirit that moved over the waters, would you come and move over us? Would you even brood in this place right now and bring to us real grace. God, I ask for the gift this morning of sorrow, of godly sorrow. We didn't get to talk about it, but I just was so uh, overwhelmed this week by reading how saints through history have talked about the grace of tears. God, I ask that you would give a renewed gift of tears among us. God, would we, would we feel godly grief? And I, I, feel, I feel like sheepish asking that because I feel like so many times we, um, we might be quick to like, come, come to, to church to like feel better or, um, look for all the places where your word brings a balm. And I do ask for those, but your word also is a sword. It cuts us. It, um, it wounds us. So Jesus, would you come and wound us this morning? You say it's blessed to mourn and we want to be we want to be in agreement with your word. God, so where there's places of sin, would you expose? 
where there's places of deficiency, would you grip our hearts? God, would you even just grip our hearts with like the present spiritual condition of our souls? Like if there's places of apathy or boredom or um, powerlessness or dullness, God, would you come and put your finger on them and trouble us with them and help us to uh, respond. Help us to be susceptible to that kind of movement of your spirit here. God, would you make us meek? Would you give us hunger and thirst for your righteousness? Would you conform us into the type of people that you call blessed? We long for that. We long for it. You say that this is the the kind of foundation that won't be shaken. It won't be um, blown around. It won't crumble in the midst of pressure. God, we want to be we want to be built there. So would you come and move among us? We just wait on you this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come in your grace, come in your power, come in your your life? The night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat of this. In the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and passed it. And he said, take and drink. This is the the blood of the new covenant. His blood shed for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink from this. This morning, as those who follow Jesus, we come to the table and we remember his broken body, his shed blood, the the sacrifice that he gave to make a way for us to experience covenant relationship with the living God, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of grace in him, new life. If you believe in that, you're a Christian, we want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we do that at Redeemer Fellowship is to tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. Servers are up here in the middle and in both sides of the balcony. And we have a gluten-free station down here to my right. 
If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come take this meal with us. We're really glad you're here. We don't want you to feel like you have to perform or pretend. Uh, this, this meal is for those who put their faith in the reality, in the substance. If you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come and take this meal this morning. Uh, we have prayers and cards in your seat back if you need help with what it might sound like to talk to God this morning. But we invite you to stay where you are. We're really glad you're here. Uh, for those who are coming, uh, come when you're ready. We're gonna respond in song and by coming to the table. And as always, we have uh, people in the room who would love to pray with and for you for anything, anything uh, that's stirring in your soul. If there's places you wanna commit yourself before the Lord, if there's things you're asking for from him, uh, if you need healing in your body, we'd love to stand with you and ask the spirit of God to move more. So we're gonna respond in those ways. Now you can come forward when you're ready.